Will you bow your head with me before we look at this important subject? Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship and look at your word, to have that freedom, and we're thankful that you've given us your revealed truth in this book. And Lord, even as we just sung, we we ask you to speak through it, words unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity. And Lord, we pray that you will, even in this service, uh, continue the echo of the great word that you have given to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning I want to address this important subject, in part because it is what has become known as Sanctity of Life Sunday, but also because the position of our church needs to be made radically clear in an age that is radically diluted. Our own statement of faith concerning our position on this subject says this, We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. So what we believe about human life is based off of clear principles within God's word. And so those principles form the foundation from which our convictions are born from. We do not believe in the sanctity of human life because some or most of you may be Republicans or conservatives. We believe in the sanctity of human life because we are the people of God. As Russell Moore has rightly said, the personhood and dignity of the unborn are not political wedge issues. They are essential human rights. And as the people of God who study the word of God, we find clearly within God's word that somebody is a person at the moment of conception and that personhood and human rights must last until they draw their final breath. So as Christians, we do not accept abortion. We do not accept Assisted suicide, suicide itself, homicide, or euthanasia in any form. We cannot be afraid to say any of that. That as Christians, we must be wholly pro-life from conception to death. Specifically this morning, as we consider the issue of abortion and what the Bible has to say, Christians must be unapologetically supportive of the pro-life position and do all they can to eradicate this monstrous activity From our land. Fundamentally. Because we understand the gospel of Christ. We believe that the power of God. Is found in the gospel. And so that the solution to this horrific activity. That we have created for ourselves as a nation. That that so easily dismembers its children in the womb. We must be clear about the problem that it is. But we also need to be clear about the solution. That can solve the problem. And that is the gospel. So Jesus extends forgiveness to all of those who have personally had an abortion. Jesus extends forgiveness to those who have been a part of the decision to have an abortion. He extends forgiveness to all of those who perform abortions. So if you're the mom and you felt that you were alone and you had nowhere to go, if you had an abortion, there is forgiveness in Jesus. If you were the father and you didn't fuel hope and resolve to to the mother that you for the child that you helped to procreate and you didn't step in and try to do something about it, there is forgiveness. If you were the parent of a teenager and you didn't want your child to suffer the embarrassment of a sexual sin or you didn't want to suffer it yourself and you coerced your child to have an abortion, 
there is forgiveness. And there's forgiveness extended even to our nation if she would repent of this great wickedness and turn to God. And so the problem on the one side is clearly the murder of babies. And on the other side, the solution is Jesus and the gospel. So we have a God that forgives. Abortion is not the unforgivable sin. And to live as though God has not forgiven us after we come to him for forgiveness is a terrible way to live. And shame on any church that would hold a a forgiven by God sin over the head of somebody who had committed that sin. Christians should be radically pro-life because we have life. But we also fundamentally understand a couple of things which we're going to be looking at within our the text, the various texts that we look at this morning, and are also found on the back of your bulletin, just my four main bullet points that I want to look at together, but they are here. We believe that God is the giver of life. We understand that God has fashioned each and every one of us. We understand that children are a reward or a heritage from God, and God himself ascribes personhood to the unborn. So this morning, although different from what we usually do, generally we take a certain passage and analyze it, look at it, see what God has for us from that. This morning, we're going to really do more of what we might call a biblical theology, seeing what much of Scripture has to say on this subject, on the importance of life, specifically the life of the unborn. And the first bit that I want you to see is that God gives life. Those of you who are familiar with your Bible you know that at the very beginning is where we find human life. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created matter and space and time. He created animals and seas. He created the laws of nature. And at the pinnacle of creation were human beings. And that first chapter of the Bible tells us that God formed man in the image of himself. So man has been made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 Verse 26 and 27 say this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So he gave man dominion over the entire earth. He told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply. Therefore, multiplying the image of God all over the earth that he created. So do you see the importance of that? So God in heaven, he he creates man in his image. He tells man to, to reproduce, to multiply, to fill the earth with billions of people who also bear his image. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 tells us this. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So there man was. Formed by the hands of God from the dust of the ground. And God breathes into him the breath of life. And so Adam opens his eyes as a living person. Adam was formed and given life by none other than God himself. God is the giver of life. Acts chapter 17 verse 25 says this. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So this is an absolute Statement that carries over to all mankind. That God is the one who gives life. He's the one who gives breath. He gives everything to us. And for any human being to desecrate 
what God had created, whether it's a baby in the womb or a person near the end of their life already, it's to take into their own hands the desecration of the image of God bearer that the person is. Now this is going to take maybe a little bit of imagination because it's impossible. But imagine that you were there the day that God created Adam. And you saw that God had created Adam out of the dust of the ground. And, and there he is. He's, he's lying there on the ground. His heart is not beating. His chest is not rising and lowering with air. He's lifeless at that moment. And you see him there. And you, you go over to a tree. You rip off a branch. And you begin to beat on that body that God had just created. Do you think that God would be happy with you for desecrating what he had fashioned, what he had made with his own hands in that unique situation where the breath of life had not even been given yet? Do you think that God would be happy that you would go and desecrate what God had personally just made? And friends, the truth is that each and every one of us have been made in the image of God. And to destroy that would be to destroy something that God himself has made and given life to. He himself has given us our life and our breath. He He alone is the one who's sustaining us at this very moment. All of you, as far as I can tell, are alive. Some of you are yawning. But you are alive, generally speaking. And God has given you that life. And he could off any one of us at any time. God is the one who has fashioned us. And to desecrate any of that would be a grievous sin. And this is the next point that I want you to see. First, God is the giver of life. And second, God fashions each of us. Just as Adam was fashioned by God, so were you. The Bible couldn't be any clearer in how it speaks of life even before Birth, the famous text we often go to when thinking about this subject is Psalm 139, where it says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the sea. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You notice that intimate language there by David. God formed our inward parts. He's the one who knit us all together in our mother's wombs. He, he took six days to create the entire earth. And he takes nine months to bring a baby to full gestation. This is incredible. David says that his frame, his bones, while in his mother's womb, were not hidden from God. Intricately woven. David acknowledges that in the book of God, every single one of his days were written down. Even before he was born. And the same is true for all of us. That upon conception, God knows certainly the whole book of our lives, everything that we will do with every single day. David says that he was fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Notice that connection between David rejoicing in how God created his body and in his soul delighting in this fact, this body and soul connection. But notice next with me that God ascribes personhood to the unborn in the Bible. And this is really one of the big areas where we're going to sit for a while. This is a, it's important. When the Bible talks about the unborn even, it doesn't refer to it as a clump of cells, but as life. As representing the people 
that they are. I think our society is struggling to even be consistent in her own laws. That our legal system allows for the killing of babies if you don't want the child, but on the other side, to kill a pregnant woman can be to commit a double homicide. And so if you want the baby and the woman is murdered, it's a double homicide. If you didn't want the baby, then it's not really a problem. So you probably remember that high-profile case from over a decade ago, the Scott and Lacey Peterson trial, where he was convicted of killing his wife, who was carrying his unborn child, and the courts determined that it would be a double homicide. So she could have aborted her child without penalty, but because he killed them, it was a double penalty for doing so. So, so is it a baby or is it not a baby? Is it a life or is it not? Is it, a, is it a clump of cells or is it a person? Is the dad killing the baby in the womb murder, but the mom killing the baby in the womb not? So there's really no consistency in the world's own worldview on how to deal with this subject. But we would be very, we need to be very clear to say that life in the womb is life in the womb. The baby is alive. It is a person. The Bible is clear on this. Even in the Old Testament, in the law of God, there were actually laws about this. Look up there on the screen. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with a child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, she shall sure, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. Okay, so I'll stop there for one second. So two men are in an argument. Somehow a woman gets hit. Maybe she gets jabbed in her stomach somehow, and the baby is born prematurely, but everything's okay then there's going to be a fine involved. The men involved are going to be fined, but I'll continue on. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Lex talionis is what he's saying. So if the baby dies, then somebody else's life needs to be taken. If the baby is seriously injured, and so on. So this is the whole point that ascribes personhood to that child, that the child came out prematurely and died, somebody is culpable for that happening. So what does Moses, through the inspiration of the Spirit, think about life within the womb? If you hit a woman and her child comes out prematurely and and the baby dies, then your life is to be taken. You are liable for that life. But let's look further at the subject of personhood from the Scripture. Joel 31, verse 15. Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? So Job acknowledges that it was him in the womb. Job was Job before he came out of his mother. We find this concept in Psalm 22, verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. It was me. David was David before he was taken out. But let's look further at some clearer texts that should be helpful as well. Isaiah 49, verse 1. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. So God knew Isaiah, the prophet, before he was even born. He was called before he was born. From the body of Isaiah's mother, God knew his name. He distinguishes between the body of his mother and Isaiah as a person. So the whole conversation about it being the woman's body, and that's why we should be able to destroy babies, is outrageous, even considering what the Bible has to say. Jeremiah 1, verse 5, the same kind of thing is said about the prophet Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. 
So Jeremiah was formed by God. He was known by God. He was consecrated by God. And he was appointed by God all before he was even born. So God's sovereignty had the work in the lives of his own. So do you not see the value that the Bible places on the lives of the unborn? How God views children within the womb. He views them as people and can call them and know them and appoint them. What about Luke chapter 1? You remember that? We kind of went over a little bit at Christmas time where Mary, she goes up to her cousin Elizabeth. They're both pregnant at the same time. And what happens? The, the baby John the Baptist leaps in Elizabeth's womb for joy. Or that statement of even David in Psalm 51 after he commits his, his grievous sin and he commits adultery and he kills Uriah and all of that stuff. It says that he was conceived in sin. Not that he was conceived out of wedlock. He had many older brothers. But the saying, what he's saying is that he was a sinner since before he was born. He was conceived in sin. A child of Adam. Only people can be sinners. David, before he was born, was a sinner. Or the example of Christ may be the greatest example that we have. That he could have come to earth any way that he would choose or come as a man already or done it in any kind of way. But how did God send his son to earth? He used conception as a means for the Christ to come. Mary conceiving in herself by the Holy Spirit, he came in a safe, natural way through the womb of a loving mother. Personhood is clearly ascribed to babies in the womb in the Bible. And so to abort one of these persons is to literally kill a person. And it's horrific that our society rejoices in this so-called women's health issue in part because they call it something different than it actually is. So Christians are free to call it murder. The world calls it choice. So you see, once you put that veneer on it, it doesn't sound so bad. In fact, it can sound quite good. Listen to these helpful Words from John Bloom, and they'll be up behind me as well. The killing of children can be tolerated and even championed as a social good so long as we don't call it what it is. Call abortion an individual's right to privacy, and you can write it into the legal code. Call abortion a compassionate choice offered to a frightened girl to save her future or to save a child from an undesirable quality of life, and you can swing popular opinion. Call abortion a liberation of women from the social and economic oppression of male dominance. And passionate people will march on capitals chanting demands to preserve the human right of abortion on demand. But you won't hear the street marchers chant, we will fight for the right to kill our children. Because calling abortion what it is might awaken uneasy consciences out of a euphemistic stupor to realize that millions of the most defensive human beings on the planet are being denied the self-evident creator endowed human right to life. Death is in the power of logic-contradicting, term-redefining, and deceptively clinical tongues. We have allowed legal child-killing on demand for, at the time of this writing, 41 years because we've called it something else. And just about 60 million babies have been murdered since 1973 after Roe v. Wade. 60 million. That's more than four times the amount of people who live in New England right now. The World Health Organization, who says that about 40 to 50 million babies are killed each year, that's 125,000 a day, dwarfing the Holocaust toll. We know so much more now than we did in 1973 in regard to what babies think and feel and all of that. Even the technological advances where we can see the baby's face. 
We just had, if you didn't know, if you can't tell by now, Bethany's pregnant. Um, guys, it's safe to now assume that she's pregnant. Okay? I know it's, just don't assume that. But she is. But we had one of those 3D imaging things done a few weeks ago. And, and Laurel, that's what we're going to be naming the baby, has her father's nose, just like her big sister does. It should be radically clear that life and value is there. And to argue otherwise is intellectual negligence. We went a couple days ago to Portland for what felt like an incredibly extensive ultrasound. And I look at those ultrasounds, the black and white of it, and the technician is going on and on about all of these things. Apparently Laurel at 31 weeks has a ton of hair already. And you can even see it on the screen, those black and white screens. You can see little puffs of hair. The technician was showing us how she already has chunky little legs. You can see the little fat dimples in the legs already. She was measuring the heartbeat. She was showing us the spine. She was measuring inside of the brain. I mean, we sat there and we were looking at all of the things that God has been able to see for thousands of years. And I was sitting there itching to ask the technician if she wasn't already, how could you do this every single day and not be pro-life? The technology is astounding, and the knowledge that we have about the unborn is immense. It is so much greater even than we had 40 years ago when Roe v. Wade passed. But abortion has been around far longer than 40 years, and Christians have long condemned it. In fact, all the way back in the first century when Jesus was was alive post him, when Josephus, this historian, came around, he said this, The law orders all the offspring to be brought up and forbids women either to cause abortion or to make away with a fetus. That was all the way back in the first century, 2,000 years ago. The Didache, which was a very early Christian document, said to not murder a child by abortion or to kill them when born. And yet another early Christian letter from the second century called the letter of Barnabas said, You shall not abort a child nor again commit infanticide. They didn't have 3D imaging They didn't have ultrasounds, yet early Christians knew it was wrong and defended the lives of the unborn. Studies show that babies feel significant pain when aborted. There's even studies showing that the way they sleep indicates they may be dreaming. You can go online and see horrific videos of babies recoiling back when an abortion instrument comes into the womb, running for their lives as it were. Why? Because they are people who desire safety. If the kind of life, evidence that conception were to be found on Mars, they'd say, there's life on Mars. But for a baby, a conceived baby in the womb, it's not given the same joy, dignity, or respect. They are not recognized as persons or protected as such. They do not have the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And some of the problem boils down, and maybe even our own apathy comes in, because we don't view children very positively. In a post-industrial technological society, children are more of an inconvenience than anything. They hamper our ability to have as many nice things as we want. They take away the possibility of early retirement, or they take away the, the chance of one of the parents, at least, career. But biblically speaking, when we see the discussion of children within the Bible, you see them referred to not as obstacles, but as blessings. Psalm 127. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. 
catch that. The children, they're a heritage from God. They're a reward. They are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. The, the more, the better. Blessed is the man who has his quiver, that, that thing that holds the arrows full of kids. In Genesis 33, verse 5, we see Jacob introduce his brother to his children, whom God had graciously given him. In Genesis 48, 9, Joseph talks about the sons God had given to him. Their children were considered gifts. And to every couple who conceive a child together, they have a choice to view that child as a gift from God or an obstacle. The Christian way to view a pregnancy is to view that child as a gift from the hands of God. The worldly way to view a pregnancy is to view it as an obstacle. And it's obvious that many in our country view the children conceived as obstacles, which is why they do away with them. And for many of those who, of course, get an abortion, the last thing that they are going to view an unwanted pregnancy as is a blessing from God. As though God would or could ever bring something beautiful out of a sinful or even non-sinful relationship that they were involved with, that they were married. But friends, this is one of the beautiful things that God does, that He allows life to come from tragic or sinful situations. With God, we have the opportunity to, to trade the ashes for beauty. I'm not arguing that it's easy. To the, to the woman raped, and there's a baby inside of her, I'm not saying that's easy. To the woman who had a one night stand and is left with a baby. I'm not saying that's easy. But I'm saying that it's right. Regardless of the situation where the baby was conceived. Whether sinful or not. It is always wrong to desecrate what God himself has allowed to begin. You will never be able to make something right by doing something wrong. Two wrongs don't make a right. That works in algebra. But it doesn't work in life. And what do we know? How do we not know that God would take the child conceived in a horrific situation and do something marvelous through it? I'll never, even, I'll never forget the day I was driving with a friend of mine. We went to, uh, it was, while I was in college, we went to a resort and we went to this pool for the day. And on the way back while he was driving, he began to tell me more about his background. And I knew this guy pretty well, so I thought. But he told me of how his mother had been raped at a fair And he was the product of that rape. His mother ended up meeting a good man. He married her and he loved her. He took my friend to be his own son. And now he's a Bible college graduate, a loving husband and dad, leading worship at his local church in Kentucky. Who is saying that's easy? Nobody is saying that that is easy. But look how God takes a horrific situation and turns it into a beautiful testimony of his grace. Or another situation, not so positive. There was a girl that I went to college with. I didn't really know her that well, but she married one of the guys at our school. And he ended up getting into politics. And he is now a Republican state representative in Michigan. And somehow the story got loose that his wife had had an abortion when she was a teenager. She had gotten incredibly drunk at a party, had no memory of what had happened. And the way she put it on her Facebook page last year was that she had been taken advantage of. So as a young, alone teenage girl, she went in and she had her abortion. Nobody really knew. Her mom and dad didn't know. It was very secretive. 
And here this couple is now, years and years later. He's in public office as a hard-wing conservative with a wife who had an abortion when she was in high school. And now she was being threatened with that news going public, hopefully to mar her and her husband's reputation or whatever. And so she came out and conceded to it that she had done it. She confessed that it still haunts her, that she thinks about it almost every day. But although a tragic situation, she is now able to give testimony to God's forgiveness and grace. She said this on her Facebook page when she announced it or or mentioned it. To all pro-life advocates, be against abortion, yes, but let's continue being proactive and looking for young girls and women who are hurting, suffering, and confused so we can offer them assistance. Let's be about solutions and showing the true love of Christ to each and every woman in our communities and families. And I tell you both of these stories to hopefully help you to see that in both cases, God is now receiving the glory for horrific circumstances that happened. My friend who was conceived in rape is now living his life to the glory of God and raising his family to do the same. The woman who aborted her baby as a teenager, she has repented and is living not in fear, but as a righteous child of God. In both of these cases, God alone is receiving the glory, even though both stories began in incredible pain. The gospel makes all of that possible. So in the situation with my friend, what would motivate a man to take a woman who was raped and who had this child and take her as his own and take that boy? The gospel would motivate that kind of love. What would motivate this girl who had an abortion to now come and say, I totally regret it. I wish that I had never done it. But now I live in the freedom of Christ and I live in his forgiveness. And I want to let other people know that there is forgiveness as well. Legalized abortion is an incredible opportunity for gospel activity. For the church to be mobilized as salt and light to enter into the corrosion of our culture and to help slow the rot, to be light, to help others to see the darkness that something like abortion truly is. And may God motivate us by his own love to gospel activity, to be the salt and light that we need to be in our culture. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word again. And these verses are clear. And we see clearly that you are the giver of life, that you have fashioned all of us, that you ascribe personhood to the unborn. We are so thankful that your word is not silent on this issue. And Lord, I pray that you'll be with our church. Help us to love those who are feeling so alone with a baby inside them. Help us to love those who have committed abortions. Lord, help us to be the kind of voice of, to be your hands and feet as we go and we seek to serve those 